Good morning, church. Happy Sabbath. It's good to be here. That's a powerful story, isn't it? It's not over until it's over. And that's the power of the gospel, is that God can do anything in our lives. He, if he comes into our lives, and we'll see the story of Paul today, how God had changed it. Um, welcome if you're here for the first time. We are busy with a series in the book of Galatians, um, and it's entitled Plus Nothing, because we just need Jesus, and that's Paul's kind of point in the book of Galatians. There's nothing else to, to get eternal life. You need Jesus and Jesus alone. And so today we're going to look at Galatians chapter 1, verse, 20, uh, verse 11 to chapter 2, verse 21. Quite a big passage, long story, uh, but we'll go through it not too fast. Let's, uh, let's just close our eyes for another prayer. Gracious Father, we come to you, Lord, and we say thank you for your love and your mercy. Lord, thank you that we can be here once again, Lord. Thank you that we can open scripture today, Lord. I pray that we would see what Paul saw in the gospel and in, in you, Lord, that we would be uh, illuminated by the same spirit, Lord, that, that touched Paul, Lord, um, that we would uh, be encouraged by your scriptures, Lord, that we can learn something for, for, for us as Christians here in 2020. I pray that you would lead and guide me now as I communicate, Lord. It's my prayer in your name. Amen. There's a, there's a power to the gospel. There's a power that, that can overcome us, that it can do something that is almost impossible uh, for us as humans, right? And, and one of the stories that I recently came across is the story of Jamil and Andrew. Um, they are friends now, and they tour the world together, but they weren't always friends. In 2004, Andrew was an undercover cop, and uh, he had busted a guy for crack cocaine, and the guy didn't want to go to prison, so he said to him, hey, hey, I'll make a deal with you. Uh, if I can give you a bigger drug bust that will be great for your career, will you let me go? So he said to him, okay, that's cool. So he made a few phone calls and said, I know there's going to be a big drug drop at this uh, uh, station, um, a petrol station, and I'll set it up for you. I'll tell you who the people are involved in, and you will make a, a career bust. So he says, okay, that's cool. So he got the information, and he went to the, to the station. He saw the car that he, he, he knew was going to be there and uh, looked into the car, and he saw a person in the car that wasn't the person that he thought should be there. And so he looked around and he saw another person come out of the store, Mr. Jamil, and as he was walking, he thought, well, this is probably the guy. He walked up to him and said to him, hey, where's the dope? What do you mean dope? This guy, Jamil, just went to go buy something at the store. He says, where's the dope? And before, uh, before long, Andrew had him in the cuffs and, and had him arrested took him to prison, and, and Jamil was in prison. He hadn't done anything wrong. He had, you know, uh, this was nothing to do with, with him, really. He didn't have drugs. He wasn't the guy. But then he thought, oh, this is just a mis misunderstanding. In a few days, I'll be out. After a week, he realized, man, this is getting serious. They started to do forensic tests and everything, and every, everything came uh, back negative, the, the fingerprints and all of these things. And Andrew said, man, he's going to be in a lot of trouble. And so he started planting evidence and fixing certain things and not too long after that, Jamil was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Andrew said he didn't even think of it. He, 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 when the sentence came down that, that Jamil was guilty, he said, well, that was probably just a pat on my back to say, job well done. He probably was the guy. He went to prison. Not too long after, about two years after, Andrew's uh, crooked cop uh, was found guilty for possessing drugs himself. And they started to realize that this was a bad guy. 
And after he had busted, the busted and lost his job, uh, he was discouraged. He lost his job on the Tuesday. By the Wednesday, he wanted to commit suicide. His wife recommended that he go see a pastor. He went to the pastor, started to speak to him, started to tell him what he has been doing the last two, th- two three years, stealing money from the government, stealing money from, from drug dealers, planting evidence, doing all of these things to, to bolster his career. And he said the more he was just con- uh, uh, telling the, the pastor what he has been doing, he felt better. Eventually, the pastor said to him uh, that he needs to correct the wrongs. He committed his, his life to Jesus. He felt the grace of the gospel come over him, and he said, I need to do the right thing. He phoned the FBI, and he, the FBI uh, worked with him to, to start working on the cases that he had planted evidence for. Andrew went to prison for three years, and um, Jamil uh, came out of prison. He just uh, had a 10-year sentence, but after three years, they, they um, let him go free. A few years later, Andrew is in the park, you know, kind of had, did, did his prison sentence, everything is fine, and Jamil walks up with his little boy, his boy that he didn't know for the first three years of his life, his little boy that he wasn't there when he was born, and he didn't see his first steps, and, and, and he was missing through the first three years, and he walked up to me, and he, he took out his hand and, 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 and um, put it in front of Andrew. Andrew took his hand, shaked it, and then he said, do you know who I am? No. He said, I'm one of the guys that you sent to prison. And Andrew said he could feel this coldness just come over him. And Jabil said he felt this intense anger. This man robbed me of so much. And then he said to Andrew, I want you to tell my child why I wasn't there for the first three years of his life. So Andrew, now a committed Christian, started to apologize, and, and he said, you know what, I forgive you. Because you see, when Jamil was in prison, he also met Jesus there. He found a Bible, then he started reading it, and as he started reading the Bible, he encountered Jesus, and he connected with God, and, and he found the gospel liberating, and he started to feel that he needed to forgive those that have wronged him, including Andrew. And so there in that park, he said to Andrew, hey, I forgive you, and they parted ways. End of the story, or so we think. Four years later, Jamil is in a program to help him to find a job, and the lady that's in charge of this program says to him, hey, we found, him, found you a mentor. They said, cool. So three weeks into the program, they each get a mentor that will help them, and, and uh, she calls him to come in, he sits down, and she says, well, who's, who he says to her, who's my mentor? And she says, his name is Andrew Collins. He's like, you've got to be kidding me. Andrew Collins comes in, and when he sees him, locks eyes, he says, you've got to be kidding me. God must have a sense of humor. And again, Andrew says to him, man, I just want to apologize. I'm really sorry for everything that I've done. I'm really sorry for the way that I've treated you. I'm really sorry for everything. And Andrew again says, hey, man, I forgive you. And in a discussion, as they're talking about this, Andrew, a few years later, says this. He says, Andrew, I forgive you. Andrew, I forgive you. And the reason for that is if God didn't forgive us, For every single thing that we have done in our lives, where would that leave us? Think about that. Is that not the power of the gospel? I mean, that is ludicrous for this guy to forgive Andrew. For Jamil to say, hey, it's okay. I was three years in prison where I shouldn't have been. I have lost so much of my child's life, but it's okay. I forgive you. But through the power of the gospel, he forgives. And this story becomes a testimony 
about the power of God in people's lives. There's something profound about how God works in people's lives. I mean, we have beautiful theology and we have beautiful songs, but one of the most profound things that move us is the story of people's lives being changed by the gospel. And a large part of the book of Galatians is the story of Paul's story, how he was changed by the gospel. But Paul tells his story in quite a few verses but he has a specific, a specific reason for telling that, a very important reason, and, and that's what we want to look at today. We're going to get into that, but I, I want us just to keep in our minds constantly as we go through the book of Galatians what the problem is in Galatia. Richard Lemsky put, puts it really well. He says, the charge of the Judaizers, those are the accusers, the charge of them had launched against Paul was in order to discredit him and his gospel. So everything that they are doing, all the theology up and all the, all the uh, gossip stories and all the uh, accusations and all the, all the defenses, everything that they're trying to do is because they want to discredit him and his gospel. Two things. They want to discredit Paul as authoritative figure and everything that he will say then will be discredited as well, meaning his gospel. They allege that Paul toned down the rigorous legal requirements of the original gospel in order to gain approval of the Gentiles, to make the gospel palatable to them, and to carry favor with it. So this is what they're saying. Paul was preaching cheap grace. That's what these Judaizers were saying. Paul was, che- was preaching cheap grace, where you could just do whatever, like you don't have to do everything that the Bible says, just do a little bit of it. Have you heard certain things like that? Now, let let me ask this. If you had Paul here today, and you didn't know him from a bar of soap, he just came in and he preached this gospel, and you had the Judaizers, who would you follow? Our natural inclination is to follow the Judaizers, if we're honest. I was speaking to a guy this week, actually, and as we were talking about conversion and Christianity, he mentioned that he said, we generally tend to go very conservative, That's what the Judaizers were. They were very conservative. Let's remember to keep all of these things, right? And have all of these hedges and all of these things. In his ambition to build churches and to gain the great following, he emasculated the gospel and stripped it of its essential parts. The Judaizers came to Galatia in order to restore the gospel to its true content. So think about the Judaizers. If you think about them, they were good people trying to do a good thing. They're saying, hey, there's something. Somebody has touched our gospel. Somebody is trying to emasculate it and, and truncate it and re- reduce it. No, 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 no. We should defend the gospel. We should stand up for it. Paul's gospel of liberty was a piece of consciousness accommodation to the gentle reluctance in accepting Jewish law. Oh, yes, the Judaizers also preached Christ, but in the full legal setting without which the Galatians could not be saved. That's the context, the problem that Paul is fighting against. So he's fighting against this idea, and this is what they're fighting against, is that there's the true nature of the gospel. Paul wants to tell us what the gospel is truly about. In order for him to do that, for, in order for us to truly believe him, we need to know that Paul has, is an authoritative figure. If Paul is not an authoritative figure, if he's just, an, uh, just an somebody that brings an opinion, we wouldn't value him that highly. But Paul says, no, 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 I'm not just some guy from Jerusalem with some opinion about scripture. I am an emissary from Christ himself. So when I speak, I speak on behalf of Christ. These are not Paul's words. This is not Paul's gospel. This is Jesus Christ's gospel. So if you go against that, you're going against Christ himself. Going against any other gospel is going against Christ and his kingdom. That is Paul's message. But they know that if they can chip away at his authority, they're going to chip away at his, at his 
and his message. So the whole story that we're going to kind of look at is how Paul builds up this idea that he has authority to preach the gospel. And he does that through showing his independence from Jerusalem, his independence from certain people. And this is his thesis statement. The Galatians chapter 1 verse uh, 10 to 12 is the most important thing. Right? That is the thesis statement. That is the important thing that he's trying, trying to, to tell us. He says, for am, I now signed to the, uh, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still pray, trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, when we read the book of Galatians or when we read the book of Romans or anything about these, we read it in a sense of you're listening to a one side of a conversation. Sometimes it's called mirror reading. We have to kind of read and say, okay, that must have been the problem there. So when we're reading this, you can imagine that the Judaizers, the accusers are going around and saying, Paul is just trying to please people. He's just trying to placate you, Galatians, so that you don't have to do all the difficult stuff. He's trying to make it easy for you so that you like him. And Paul says, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not me. I'm not here just to tickle your ears and do something that you'd be like, yeah, this is easy to take. Now, Paul is saying, I'm not here to placate men. I'm not here to make men happy. I'm following God. I'm a servant, a, a, a slave of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was preached to me is not man's gospel. It's not an opinion of some other man. It's not some guy, some theologian, some pastor, some evangelist that came to me and now I'm just sharing this. No, no, no. It wasn't preached by man. For I did not receive it from any man, but I was taught it and I was received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. The base of his authority that he is working from is from the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the foundation of his faith. So we can see that that's the thesis statement. And now he starts moving into a direction where he starts slowly but surely showing his independence to, from certain things. Firstly, from human teaching, verse 13 to 17. He says, For you have heard from my former life in Judaism how I persecuted the church God violently, uh, uh, of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age and among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. Now, once again, I want us to have context about this. Paul was a good guy. If Paul was in this church today, he would have been the head elder, for sure. Like, he was a guy that gave everything for the gospel. And this idea of being zealous and killing people wasn't a thing that he was, oh, as a Christian or as a, as a, as a Jewish believer, it was, was difficult for him to comprehend. No, 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 no. This is something that was already rooted in the Old Testament. We see, for instance, in, the, in, uh, in Philippians, he, he mentions that word zeal as well there. Um, he says that he was extremely zealous. In Philippians, he says that he has extreme zeal, right? In Numbers, we see this idea of Phineas, where, where the Israelites have, have fallen away from God. They, they've committed adultery and fornication. They're worshiping other gods. And Phineas, with all the zeal for God, kills two people, Right? We pick up in verse 10, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Phineas, son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. How did he do that? Since he was zealous for my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore, tell him, I am making my covenant of peace with him. He, he and his descendants will have a covenant, covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the what? for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. How was he zealous and how did he make atonement? By killing two people that were sinning in front of God's temple. We see the same thing with, with Elijah. First Kings chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done. What did Elijah do? He was on Mount Carmel and he killed how many people? 400 Baal prophets. 
He slaughtered them. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Now, verse, verse 9, just a few verses after that. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been what? Very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me. Here in the Old Testament, we see that certain men of God were zealous for God, and they were willing to even kill for it. And so Paul in his pharisaical mindset, sees this new little Jewish rabbi come and then suddenly he blasphemes and says that he is from God and he has this upstart movement and all of these people are saying that this is God and this is blasphemy. And so Paul, as a good Jew, says, no, 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 no I can't have this be. I must fight for God's, for God's honor. And he starts persecuting the church. But then Jesus rocks up and, and Jesus reveals himself and Jesus changes him through the gospel. And we see that, but when who has set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace. He says that I was zealous for God and I was doing all of these things, but I had missed it. But Jesus showed up and, and he showed me grace and he called me to something else. Once again, rooted in the narrative of the Old Testament. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah speak about this. Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Isaiah speaks about the same calling. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me by name. So we have this idea that Paul is steeped in Old Testament uh, uh, literature. He knows what this is, and he has the same zeal that Elijah had. He had the same zeal, Aphenius. He has all the same zeal. He's following and pursuing and doing everything for God passionately. But then Jesus comes, and he says to him, use that zeal for the right things. You see, that's a profound uh, point that Paul is making is that sometimes we have zeal for certain things that we think is for God, but it is not for God. If Jesus isn't the center of our religious zeal, then we are just like Paul on the wrong track. And so Paul says, now, now that I have the zeal and I have this calling of Jesus, like, like, like Isaiah and like, like Jeremiah, I have now something to bring. And so he distanced himself from, from, from these, these human agencies. He says, for I was pleased, uh, he was pleased to reveal his son to me. And in order that I might preach among uh, the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. After he had been called, he didn't go to Jerusalem to get a rubber stamp from them to say, yeah, you're one of our boys. No, no, he didn't go back to them. I don't know that I go to Jerusalem or to any of the apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. He goes into the desert and spends time with God. We don't know what happened in Arabia, but he has a connection with God. He builds his personal relationship with God even further and deeper there. But then we see Paul moves in verse 18, and he says that not only did he move away from the human element, but even further from the churches. I'm not going through all the verses here, but in verse 18, he says, then after three years, I went in Jerusalem. After three years in the desert, he goes back to Jerusalem and he visits uh, Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James and the Lord's brother. And then after that, I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was also still unknown person to the churches of Judea and all the Christes. So he's not going to the churches looking for them to, to give a rubber stamp and to say, yeah, you're one of us and, and we approve. And he, no, no, no. He's saying, I don't care what these men say. Now, I only care what God says. Amen. And further on, he, 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 he stay, takes a step further, not only the churches surrounding, but even the main church, the church in Jerusalem, he doesn't even care. He says he, he, he's independent of them. Verse six, he says, chapter two, verse six says, and from those who seem to be influential, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. 
Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John seemed to be pillars, the core group, the main disciples, the main apostles, when they perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me. And that they should go to the Gentiles, that they should be circumcised. And then he moves to the main guy. The guy that everybody was look for, looking forward to, Peter, in Galatians chapter 2, he says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, and I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when he came and drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, and when the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas, Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy, and when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you... Though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Can you see what he's doing as he's telling his story, as he's telling his conversion story, and, and as he was developing his faith? He's saying that I, I was independent. I was not dependent or contingent on other people. The gospel that I'm sharing is not just from this guy's theological textbook or from this pastor's sermon. No, no, no. What I received and what I give to you is from Jesus himself. We see Paul's argument spins tighter and smaller as it gets towards Jerusalem to the apostles and then to the most distinguished apostle at the time, Peter. And by eliminating all of these sources, Paul accomplishes two things. The first thing is he confirms the likelihood that his gospel is a direct revelation of Jesus Christ. So when people in Galatia are listening to his gospel, they can't say, well, you know what, Paul, you make a strong argument, but that's your opinion. Peter maybe says something different. Or I've heard some apostles from Jerusalem say something different. He says, no, no, no. I don't care what says who. Let me tell you what it is. Jesus says this and this is how it is. And that's why he can stand up to Peter and says, hey, Peter, you're out of line here, bro. Like what you're saying and what you're doing is not the same thing. That's why Paul can keep him accountable to the gospel. Paul is not keeping, keeping Peter accountable to his opinion of the gospel. Paul is keeping Peter accountable to the gospel of Jesus. And that's why he can do that. Secondly, he shatters the arguments of his opponents who contended that Paul's gospel was a truncated and dated version from the men in Jerusalem. Therefore, these new converts to Christianity should be converts to Judaism. He's saying, no, 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 no. You're listening to these stories and they're saying, oh, Paul just has a small little gospel, but we have a broader gospel, a more important gospel, a gospel that is full. And he says, no, 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 they're talking nonsense. There is only one gospel. There is only one faith. There is only one Christ. And that is what I am preaching to you. And it is not mine. It is Christ's. That's the story that he's getting into. And you might ask yourself, man, what, is that, what does that have to do with me today? Yeah? I mean, I'm not living in Galatia. We don't have a problem with circumcision in our church. Like, what's the point, right? Why should we care about this whole story of Paul and the Galatian church? Well, there's a few things that is quite important to us that I think that, that does have a bearing on our lives. The first one is that zeal must be rooted in truth. Have you ever met somebody that is so religiously uh, uh, full of zeal, but on the wrong track? Even in our, now remember, Paul is not talking about the world. He's not speaking, he's speaking about Christians. He's talking about people that believe. Even within our church, we can have people that are zealous, but zealous without the truth. And when I say truth, I mean capital truth, Jesus. If Jesus isn't in the center, then what's the point? 
There's many things that the devil will try to distract us to be so zealous about this that we miss the main thing. That doesn't mean that thing isn't important, but that's not the main thing. Let's all be zealous for the truth. Let's all be zealous for Christ. Put him at the center and everything else will fall into place. If he's not in the center, well, nothing will be in place. So the first point is that zeal must be rooted in truth. Paul was very zealous for, for, for God's honor, but not really in the bigger scheme of things. Because if he was, he would always see who Jesus is. These Judaizers, I can imagine, were very zealous for what they thought was the truth, but that truth wasn't rooted in the capital truth. The second thing is that the apostolic message is God's message. So it is still binding for us today. When Paul, when Paul started preaching, he didn't say, well, this is just my opinion about the gospel. There are some Christians, there are some theologians, there are some believers that say that the Bible is merely the experience of religious people and, and, and what they explain about their religious experience with God. So when you're reading the, the works of, of Paul and you're reading the works of Peter and you're reading the works of John, that is only their experience with God. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. This is not merely my experience. This is the gospel. When we're reading the Bible, when we, we are not just reading black text on white paper and somebody else's experience, oh, that is nice. No, no, no. We are reading the word of God that is living and active for all of us, which means that it still has bearing on your life, whether you're two or 200, it doesn't matter. God still speaks to you and wants to speak to you today through his scriptures. He is still alive. He is still here today. His spirit still illuminates and moves us. And the scripture is the foundation for that. Thirdly, don't seek the approval of men. Stand on the revelation of Jesus. Paul didn't give two hoots about what the people thought of him. He made sure that he was standing on the words of Christ and Christ alone. And if people didn't like him, they didn't like him. If people didn't follow him, they didn't follow him. Now, he wasn't rude. He wasn't, he wasn't obnoxious. You know, if you go later to, to, to Galatians chapter 5, he speaks about the fruit of the Spirit as gentle and joyful. And, you know, but, but he was standing firm for what he believed. Many times when we think about our faith and the things that we adhere to, can you say that everything that you adhere to, everything that you believe is stuff that you know comes from Scripture? We believe as Seventh-day Adventists in this principle called the sola tota prima scriptura principle. It's a principle that the Protestant Reformation held to. It is something that, that um, all Protestant Christians should essentially believe in. It basically means the sola meaning the only, tota meaning the totality, and prima meaning primary, and scriptura just meaning the Bible. So it's a Latin phrase. Sola tota prima scriptura basically means that the scripture, all of scripture, from Genesis chapter 1, so the end of Revelation, all of that is applicable and important for our lives. The Old Testament is not less important than the New Testament. The New Testament isn't more important than the Old Testament. They are equally important. We understand the old through the new. But it also means that this word of God is the revelation of his will. And we take all of that as the foundation of our faith. Right? So what that means is that we all, every person in this room, has certain what they call epistemological uh, sources. Right? Epistemological just means knowledge sources. 
And so what Paul is literally doing in this argument or talk that he's doing is that he's going down, 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 all the way to the base level of your faith, and he says, let's talk about the thing that you constructed with. So think about it this way. All of us have a theological house or cathedral or something in your mind, right? Your whole faith system hangs on something or is built on something. And just like, say, for instance, this room, we can look at this room and we can look at the windows and the soundboards and the walls and the curtains and all of these things, but one thing that we cannot see is the foundations of this building. But without solid foundations, this building would not be able to stand. Similarly with our faith, we have, we, have a, we have a system in our mind, we have a house in our mind, if you wanna call it that, and, 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 and all of that stands on something. Now there are various sources of that, scripture being the most important one, then there's tradition, experience, and reason, and all of us use these to build our faith. For instance, I, I use reason to think through scripture, as do you. When you're reading the Bible, you're like, oh, that doesn't make sense. Oh, wh- I wonder what he means here. We're using our mind, we're using our reason to construct certain things, right? Then we also have experience. We have experiences with God where God speaks to us. We have experiences as he leads us that builds our faith and, and informs our worldview about our faith. Then there's tradition. We, the tradition that you grew up in, if you're a Protestant, if you're Seventh-day Adventist, if you're a Baptist, if you're a Methodist, if you're a Hindu, if you're a Buddhist, doesn't matter. All of these experiences lead into your understanding of God. And then there's scripture. And this solo tota prima scriptura principle says that scripture is supposed to be the foundational one. Meaning that if I go to you and I ask you, hey, what do you believe about God, the Father, as blah, 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 blah. You should be able to say, well, I believe God the Father is this, and I believe the, right? And I would ask you, but how do you know? How do you know? You would maybe start, well, well, I thought about it this way, and this is, right? But if you go, and you can even say, but I've experienced this, or the pastor told me, or the church told me, or whatever. But essentially, all of us, with our fundamental, most important views, should be able to say, well, at the end of the day, I can show from Scripture that I believe X, Y, Z because of this verse, and that verse, and that verse. Now, as Seventh-day Adventists, we have another element that we put there is the spirit of prophecy. But the spirit of prophecy, just like tradition and experience and reason, is not under Scripture. Scripture is supposed to be the base that we argue everything from. And that's Paul's point. Paul's point is that these Judaizers, they are using certain opinions and ideas that they have that is, that is not connected to Jesus. And that's what they're doing to him. They're saying, don't listen to Paul because he has a truncated gospel. He has an opinion about the gospel. He has some view about the gospel, but it's not the full gospel. And he says, no, I have the full gospel because my foundation starts with the living word. And so the same with us. When we start thinking about our faith, we should ask ourselves, does our faith start with scripture? Is our foundation over there? The book of Galatians was one of the key books that started the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther said it is his most favorite epistle. He said that he is married to the book of Galatians. And one of the key things in the Protestant Reformation was the sola tota prima scriptura principle. That is what we as Protestants believe. And the reason why it's so important is because in the latter days, deceptions will come. And how will you know if you're deceived or not deceived? It's through knowing the scripture. All of us, each individual, are called to know the scriptures for themselves. Because if you're saying, well, well, I can just trust my pastor, well, then you're making tradition your foundation. 
Oh, I can just listen to the Spirit and the Spirit will lead me. Well, then you're just making experience your foundation. The, the, The Holy Spirit will lead you to Scripture, who is the written word that leads us to the living word. So all of us need to be rooted and grounded in Scripture. That's how Paul sorted out the Galatian issue, through going back to the authority of Christ himself, the word. Another element that we need to do is, or a thing to think about in the story is that we need to examine our expressions of the gospel to see if they are consistent with Scripture. This is sometimes difficult. But if we look at the story, you can, you can almost say, I understand why the Judaizers came from that position. It's not just a theological issue that they were struggling. It was a sociological issue that they were struggling. In Genesis chapter 3, God himself says, a seed will come that will liberate you. Since Genesis chapter 3, they've been waiting for the seed. Then Abraham comes and God says, through you the seed will come. And then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then the 12 sons. And through all that time, the, the Jews are looking forward to the seed that will come, the Messiah that will come, the one that will liberate them. And then eventually he does come. These Judaizers are Jews that are looking to the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. And they're like, this is the guy. Finally, all the Old Testament was pointing to him. And now let's, now we can live the full Old Testament as we should. You can imagine that they had all the texts and they had all the the right things. And Paul suddenly comes up and says, I'm a Jew too, but yeah, you don't have to circumcise anymore. You can imagine that that their identity was a bit, bit, bit fragile at that moment. Because now suddenly this guy is moving the, uh, moving the, the, the story here. This is not what we've believed. This is not the way that we've always done stuff. This is not the way that people have told us to do stuff. But Paul says, it's not me that's saying this. This is Jesus. Jesus is not saying the Old Testament isn't important. He's just saying you have to, you have to look in the Old Testament to see Jesus. And Jesus is saying rethinking the Old Testament in the light of Christ changes your perspective that Jesus is in the center. And it's the same with us. We should be constantly, constantly revising and thinking and, and praying. There's a term, once again, that the Reformation used, reformata semper reformanda. This, uh, this phrase is this phrase is the church reformed is, the, is always reforming, which means that we are constantly seeking scripture, constantly asking God to lead us, constantly with a, with a, with a mind and a heart of humility to say, God, we are always ready to listen. As Seventh-day Adventists, we would say this phrase in this way, we believe in present truth. Is that not what we believe as Seventh-day Adventists? That we believe in present truth. What does that mean? It means that we are constantly seeking, that we're constantly learning, that we're constantly developing, that we're constantly growing with humble hearts and humble minds. The reason why the Judaizers couldn't see this is because they were locked in and said, we're unmovable. We should be unmovable in Christ and Christ alone. And we should know that his, his spirit is still moving and guiding us and with us. The, the, the spirit didn't stop working when Paul died, or when the disciples died. No, the spirit is still with us, still guiding us, still with us. He still wants to give us new truth. He wants us to develop new things. I believe that the spirit and God himself wants us to know certain things that Abraham and Isaac and, and David and Daniel and those guys didn't know. One day when we get to heaven, we'll say to him, hey guys, we want to tell you stuff that we learned in 2020 that you didn't know as the Spirit was developing us, as the Spirit was leading us and guiding us. 
Is that the church that we are? Growing? Or do we just want to preserve like the Judaizers and not move an inch? Paul is telling us that the gospel is strong enough to grow us, to move us as we are rooted in him. Martin Luther, as he stood in front of the popes, in front of, the, in front of these uh, accusers of him as well, just like Paul, saying to him that he must recant and throw away his views and stay with the church, he said this, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by scripture. I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything so that it is neither safe nor right to go against the conscience. May God help me. Paul, can I imagine, would have said those same words as he was standing there. I cannot go against anything else unless what I was shown by Jesus Christ. Now, he was now the emissary of the scriptures. We too are now called to look at the message of Christ in the word. To say we stand on Christ and his scriptures alone. That means that each of us, not just the pastors, not just the elders, but every single individual, whether you are seated here or you're watching online, have a responsibility to study the scripture for yourselves, to dig into it for yourselves, to not just listen to the opinions of other men, to not just follow men blindly, but to seek out scripture for yourselves. Peter later in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15 says that we should always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. Can you say that all the beliefs that you, ha- that you hold, your religious beliefs, are, can be justified from Scripture? Can you say that you can go and you can open your Bible and you can show what you believe and why you believe it from Scripture? If you can't, I would encourage you to get back into the Bible. I would encourage you to open the Bible and pray for God to lead and guide you. Because the closer we come to the end of time, the winds of strife will come, deceptions will come, Distractions will come. And if we are not rooted in Scripture, we might fall away. May we be ever faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord and Savior, thank you for the book of Galatians. Thank you for Paul's powerful uh, testimony, Lord. The story of how the gospel changed him, Lord, and, and put him on a new path with the same zeal and effort, Lord, but now for the good things, for the truth, for the gospel. Lord, I pray that we too would have that zeal for you, the zeal for the, for the truth, of the zeal for your scriptures, Lord. And we know that the scriptures in and of themselves, Lord, is not important uh, uh, a thing to be worshipped. No, 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 no. The scriptures is an avenue towards you, Lord. It is your word speaking to us. And I pray, Lord, that, that we would, we, we would uh, spend time in it, Lord, that we would make time to read it and to, to, to communicate and connect with you, Lord, that your, your Holy Spirit will work through those, through those words, Lord, so that we would be changed, that we would get into connection with the gospel, Lord, and with you. I pray, Lord, that this church will be known as a church that stands on the principles of Scripture and Scripture alone, Lord. That we will be known as people of the book, Lord, but more importantly, the people of God. I pray, Lord, that the story of of Paul, Lord, would would stir in, in us a desire and a love for you. 
Lord, I pray that we would uh, not tack on or, or put on more, more things to the gospel that is necessary, that we would be focused on you, that you would be the center of our faith. Lord, many a times we get distracted with all of these peripheral and, and minor things and we make those the important things and we would fight on those heels and die in those heels for those things. But I pray, Lord, that we would, we would keep you at the center of our faith, that we would keep you at the center and that your spirit would lead and guide us, Lord. I pray for this church, Lord. I pray for those that are here today that your Holy Spirit will work miraculously and powerfully in their lives, Lord, that they would meet you as well. I pray for those that aren't here and that are watching online, Lord. I pray that you would move in their hearts as well. Lord, this year has been a difficult year. This year has been a, a trying and a pressing year for all of us. But Lord, I pray that you would make us resilient, that you make us strong and that you make us faithful. That we, like Paul and like Luther, Lord, can say we stand on Scripture and Scripture alone. We stand on Jesus, our rock and our foundation. Thank you for everything that you do for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.